the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, the word in Orlando. As always, we get on the air because of the engineering skills of Alan Dempsey. And Andrew Herdliska produces our show. Ryan Hall joins us. He's the American record holder for the half marathon and has the fastest marathon time ever uh, by an American. His book is out, Run, The Mile You're In. And uh, Zondervan put the book out. And Ryan, it's wonderful to catch up with you. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Um, this, uh, this book is fascinating. Whether you are a runner or not, finding God in every step is the su- uh, subtitle. Uh, Ryan, when did you start running? Do you remember? Yes, I do remember. I hated to run before this moment when I was 13, and I was I grew up in Big Bear Lake in Southern California. And my dreams and goals as a kid growing up was to play professional baseball. You know, very similar to I think a lot of uh, kids that grow up in America playing little league. Um, but that all changed one day when I was going down to, I was actually playing basketball at the time, which I was not also very good at. Like I tried super hard, but I was five foot tall and a hundred pounds. So I was uh, sitting a lot of bench, but anyways, I remember going down to this basketball game and just felt like God just kind of planted this little seed of a desire to try and run around the lake in Big Bear Lake. And it's a beautiful lake, 15 miles around it. And there's just something in that moment that just kind of captured me, and it felt like it was very much kind of like outside of myself, like a desire that had been placed inside me. So I went home, I told my dad what I wanted to do. My dad, he played baseball collegiately, but then now he he was kind of into running and has been ever since uh, leaving baseball. And so he he was like, all right, well, if that's what you want to do, let's uh, lace up our shoes. And so the next Saturday, we we went out together and went on a very long, slow, painful run around the lake. And I remember coming back from that run, collapsing in the couch, and uh, just feeling, again, like God was just kind of whispering in my heart, like just I could just feel his peace and his love. And it felt like he was just telling me uh, one day I'd run with the best guys in the world, so I'd been given that gift so I could help other people. So then, you know, I went on and I uh, started out on this 20-year journey of trying to cultivate my talent and become the best version of myself that I could possibly be. And um, just learned so much throughout you know those 20 years that at the end of it all, I felt the, the need to, to share what I learned on my journey and, and learn what, what does it take to like cultivate any gift that anyone might have and uh, become the best version of themselves. The name of Ryan's book is called Run the Mile You're In, Finding God in Every Step. What does that title mean? So, yeah, I love the title because it's a mantra that I would pull on. You know, as runners, oftentimes you have things that you just, like, repeat to yourself over and over and over again when you're in the race. And this is one of my mantras. And I don't remember, it wasn't, like, my original thought. You know, I'm sure I heard it along the way from Unicaster or Meb or one of these, uh, pro runners that was one of America's best 
at the time that uh, used the same kind of mantra. But um, the reason why I like this mantra so much is because what I found is sometimes the anticipation of the pain, the anticipation of how hard this race is going to be, how hard this road is going to be that I have to travel is worse than actually traveling the road. So this was my way to kind of pull myself back into my present moment. And I've always found, like, God gives me enough grace for this moment. He doesn't necessarily give me the grace to be able to look down the road at mile 23 when I'm in mile one. Um, But that grace will be there when I get to mile 23. So it's just kind of a way for me to kind of uh, work through my own anxiety and anxiousness that I would have about, you know, what I was trying to do because, you know, my marathon goal pace is 445 per mile. So you think about running that long, that fast for that long, it's very intimidating. But when you think about, I'm just going to run this mile right here, right now, and do a great job in this mile, run 445 for this mile, and then when I get to the next mile, I'll, I'll start focusing in on that. So just kind of a way to kind of hone myself in. Uh, your table of contents uh, lists the 26 miles with a word uh, beside each mile. So let's get started. Mile one, uh, the word is vision. Uh, what are you writing there, Ryan? Yeah, so that was the story about, uh, you know, that kind of launching vision I had when collapsed on the couch and felt like God was telling me to run, that run with the best guys in the world and to help other people through that gift. Uh, then mile two uh, the word is purpose. Explain that. Yeah, so I, I I always felt like a really strong sense of purpose from that time, and so I had to really uh, focus in. Like uh, there was a lot of sacrifice actually. As soon as I started running, what happened is I lost all my friends because none of my friends were running at the time. There was no track or cross country team in my high school, so I was essentially going out on kind of like a lone man's uh, journey until. Well, along with my dad, who's coaching me, but until he started a track and cross-country team. So that's just one of the examples of, like, one of the sacrifices I had to make because that's what I found in my journey is that in order to cultivate our gift, you have to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And that leads to Chapter 3, and the word is sacrifice. Uh, anything more to add? Um, no, I, I think it's just uh, kind of like I was talking about, like, when you say yes to something, it requires you to say no to something else. Otherwise, you've watered down the amount of energy you can put into it. So, like something my dad told me when I was getting into the sport, um, he was telling me, like, because I wanted to play baseball. But I still wanted to run and play baseball at the same time. And I remember in my freshman year in high school, I went out for the baseball team, and my dad told me, like, like, listen, if you want to be great at one thing, then you have to choose, and if you want to be great at something, you have to choose one thing. If if you want to just be okay at something, unless your name is Bo Jackson, <laughs> like you have to, you know, you have to make that sacrifice. Choose like, do I want to be great at something, or do I want to be good at multiple things? And for me, I always wanted to, to be great. Uh, let's get to mile four, and the word there is goals, Ryan. Yeah, I had a big uh, transformation in my approach to goals throughout my career. So early on, I wrote my goals all over my room. I'd set my, the clocks in my house that weren't working. I'd set them to like the goal mile time I wanted to run. I had a countdown in my dorm at Stanford. And every morning I'd get up and take one day off the wall and I was counting down towards the Olympic Games. 
And uh, I kind of realized I was putting all my stock, all my value in these like performances. And I realized like I can't control those performances as much as I want to, as hard as I'm working, as much as I believe um, is, is, you know, I'm doing everything I know how to do in the right possible way. And yet sometimes physically it just like doesn't happen, you know? Um, so I had to learn like, well, what can I control every single time I'm out there? And what I kind of landed on is I can always control what's going on inside my heart. And so I would, instead of like having performance goals, like I want to run this time, finish in this place, I would set goals of my heart. Like today I want to run with thankful. Or today, like the theme is going to be patience. Like I'm just going to have a patient heart that's willing to wait until the right time in the race to spend my energy. And, um, or like today I'm going to focus on personal excellence and I'm just going to try and get everything out of my body that I have today and not compare it to how I was yesterday or how I was a month ago or a year ago or so on and so forth. So I just kind of choose these like heart goals, like one for every race to go after. And what I loved about that is like, I can accomplish that every single time, no matter how my body's performing. And that just like made me feel like I set myself up well as an athlete to be successful every single time out. Ryan Hall, the uh, marathoner has written the book. It's called Run the Mile You're In. Uh, let's get to mile five and talk about the word failure, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> failure is um, one of the biggest lessons I learned. So I, I've always been a big dreamer. And what I've learned, and uh, my pastor in Reading uh, said this, Eric Johnson, I believe, um, and he said that like if you're going to be a big dreamer, you got to develop an equally big characteristic or quality of being resilient because you're going to fall down over and over and over again. And that was certainly my experience. You know, like I remember starting out in the sport and just wondering like, what is it going to take for me to go to the Olympics? And then now, you know, fast forward 20 years, having been to two Olympics, I realized it was just, the story was me picking myself up over and over and over again. And uh, one of my favorite verses that I would pull on all the time when I was going through my failures was, um, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. And the reason why I love that verse is because you don't think of a righteous person as falling. You like you think like, oh, they're perfect. That's why they're righteous, so they don't fall. But that is saying no. Like righteous people do fall, but what allows them to get back up is their self belief in themselves that they are in right standing with God, that they are righteous. Because they believe this, they can pick themselves up. Ryan Hall. The author of Run the Mile You're In is our guest. We've got more with Ryan. First, these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Ryan Hall is our guest from Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, His book is out, Run the Mile You're In. Ryan Hall, the American record holder for the half marathon, has run the fastest marathon time ever run by an American. And uh, we've gotten to mile six, Ryan, and you call that positive focus. Uh, explain that to us. Yeah, so that comes from something my dad taught me when I was just getting into the sport. And it's a, it's an element of, like, how do you manage pain and discomfort? And so the, what my dad's advice was, he's like, listen, whatever you're focused on is going to increase. And I think what he meant by that is, like, so if I'm focused on how bad I'm my hamstrings are hurting, for example, or how just how bad I'm hurting in general when I'm out there running. 
my perception of that pain is going to go up as I place my focus on it. So I had to learn, and my dad was telling me, it's like, like, think about what feels good. Like, don't think about what's tired and what's on fire and what's killing you right now. Like, find something in your body that feels good and focus on that goodness. And it kind of goes back to that verse in the Bible that talks about, like, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is of good uh, repute or rapport or whatever, um, focus on these things, you know? And it's this idea of, like, what I focus on is, is what I'm going to get more of. So do you want to focus on how bad I'm hurting and get more pain? Or do you want to focus on, on something that feels good or maybe even something outside myself that I'm thankful for in that moment? And then that, that, that thankfulness is going to increase and that sense of like well-being will increase as I place my focus on it. Ryan, I want you to explain the next mile, uh, mile seven. You call it humility. Why? Yeah, so humility was kind of obviously a big lesson that I think I had to learn as a professional athlete, you know. Um, and for me, like, humility was not, like, thinking less of myself or less about myself and my abilities. Like, I've learned to, like, graciously accept, um, you know, when people give me compliments or the accolades, awards, stuff like that. But um, realizing, like, that doesn't determine my value uh, so something one of my pastors also at Bethel would tell us is, um, if you live by the criticisms of others, or if you live by the praises of others, you'll die by their criticisms. And so it's this idea of like, am I doing what I'm doing out here as I'm running, competing? Am I doing it to prove something to someone or am I doing it out of this sense of humility and that I'm just trying to cultivate my own gift and I'm just focused on developing this talent that I've been given. It's just a little like different way of looking at how you're competing. Um, that takes, takes a lot of humility to not get caught up in, you know, how do I compare to everyone else? How do I stack up to my competitors? How do I stack up to myself? Even, you know, I'd always be judging my performances based on what I'd previously done. And that was something that, um, took a lot of intentional work to work through and something that it's not like a one-time thing. You just learn the lesson once. And I found this for all the chapters in my book. It was like, these were the lessons I learned. Yes. And maybe there's one story that really brought it to light for me, but they were things I had to ongoing cultivate. And, and I'm still cultivating them to these, to this day. And I'm still not perfect in all these areas, you know, like, there's days when I messed up and I got to remind myself of these same lessons, which was cool to actually write the book because I had found that I was just encouraging myself as I was writing. So I was remembering and I was like, oh yeah, I need to like re like cultivate this lesson that I learned, you know, 10 years ago. Um, mile eight is called relationships. Uh, share that with us, Ryan. Yeah. So in that chapter, I kind of talk about, um, the thing that I valued the most from my my career, and you know, you talk about the American records and the Olympics and stuff, and all those were like amazing things. Like, like I'm not gonna lie, those were great experiences. But the thing that uh, goes with me to this day is the relationships I built along the way. And so I kind of tell the story of how Sarah and I met through running, and uh, and also how I met my girls, um, who we adopted for biological sisters from Ethiopia four and a half years ago and uh, their ages now their ages are 8 uh, 11 15 and 18 so we have quite the quite the range of kids but all those relationships came because I was going after the running but I've kind of learned throughout my career like 
I should be focused more on my relationships than I am even in cultivating my gifts. Um, as I look to Jesus as my example of how to live a, a fulfilling life, and he talks about the two most important things are loving God and loving other people, not you maximizing your own potential. So as, as passionate as I am about you, like in myself, reaching my full potential in, in any area of life, um, I, I realize that I have to be more concerned with um, the quality of my relationships and making those little moments with my kids and wife and friends, making those count and, and, and really investing in those more than I'm even investing in trying to cultivate my talent. Ryan, uh, tell me more about those four adopted daughters from Ethiopia. We, uh, years ago, we, we adopted 14 children from four foreign countries over the over a 10-year period. Uh, so I've got a great, wow. great interest in international adoption. Uh, how, did, how did you work with Ethiopia? How did that all come about? Wow, well, first off, that's amazing. Uh, uh, we'll have to have a follow-up conversation where, where I interview you about how to how to manage 14 kids. That's super inspiring. I thought I thought we uh, took a big bite and then we uh, went from zero to four. Um, but to answer your question, we were training in Ethiopia, and we've gotten the privilege to train all over the world. And mm-hmm. So there was something about Ethiopia, though, that really captured us. We kind of fell in love with the people, the culture, the country, mm. just everything about it. So we'd return there to train all the time. But one of the things that really pulled on my heart is seeing all these kids on the streets in Addis in their shining shoes and coming up to me and asking for a shoe shine for like 10 cents. And my thought is like, what what hopes does this kid have to get himself out of these circumstances? And so, you know, adoption is, is one of the ways you can go about a solution to that. And so my wife and I, we decided that, you know, we'd, we'd start the adoption process, and we wanted to adopt from Ethiopia. Originally, we were just going to adopt one infant. But then uh, another thing happened. We're over there training, visiting these orphanages. We're number 76 on a wait list for an infant. And then we noticed there's all these older kids, you know, quote-unquote older kids, like ranging from, like, 3 to, to 15 or 16. Um, who are waiting for families. And so I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like, here I am waiting on a wait list. These kids are waiting for families. And after interacting with the kids and meeting them and hanging out with them, playing with them, I was like, I would take any one of these kids home in a second. So Mm -hmm. we went home, we changed up our paperwork, and then we became aware of our four daughters um, who they were kind of circulating their file amongst adoption groups. I'm looking for a family to take them because they couldn't find a family that would take them. And they're talking about potentially splitting the kids up, sending two to one country, two to another country. And uh, and I come from a big family, middle of five kids. And I was like, no, no, you don't, you don't split up kids. And I just felt like similar to when I started to run, like just like like love in my heart for the girls. And it's just kind of like a slow, gradual, growing thing. And uh, so we started to pray into it, and then we went over there, we met the girls, we hung out with the girls, and then we ended up, you know, inviting them into our family. And, yeah, they've been in the U.S. for three and a half years now and are thriving, doing great. And um, our family and our life has forever been changed. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, Marvelous. Ryan Hall is our guest. Uh, His book is out. It's called Run the Mile You're In. Ryan. we're at mile nine, and the word you use there is identity. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so that was, there was a time period when I was at Stanford 
and I everything was going wrong physically. Like I was hurt, I was sick, I had poison oak. Like I, my body just felt like it was just totally falling apart. And, you know, I'm sure listeners can relate to that. Where you're just in a season where your body's just like not having anything good happen to it. You know, so I was in one of those seasons. I remember uh, looking in the mirror when I wake up in the morning, just being depressed. And I was depressed because, and I, it took me some time to figure this out, but when I was looking in the mirror, I was just seeing someone who was failing athletically and and struggling athletically and, and not performing well. So I got super down, super depressed, ended up dropping out of Stanford, and I didn't know if I was going to come back or what I was going to do. I just, I just I thought I could fix what was going on inside me by changing my physical location, which obviously in hindsight was a big mistake. So I went home, I got even more depressed, more down, but I had a conversation with my pastor at the time and he told me like, well, what's the last thing that you knew God was telling you to do for sure? And I, and I knew that the last thing I knew he was telling me to do was to go to Stanford. So, you know, I, I decided to go back to Stanford and as I went back, I started going into the Stanford football stadium and just spending like 15 minutes with God every day with a journal, a Bible, and just asking him this powerful question, like, how do you see me? And as he began to reveal to, to me how he saw me, it changed how I saw myself, and I was able to lift myself um, out of that depression. And, and what I kind of learned by identity is, like, God doesn't judge us based on our performances, and I'm so glad that he doesn't. Um, but oftentimes, I'll judge myself based on how I'm performing. So I learned that, like, I can't do that anymore. Like, what makes me valuable, special, important? is not how fast I run. It's just because I'm a child of God made in his image. And, you know, there's nothing I can do to change how much he loves me, good or bad. So just a powerful lesson that really freed me up in the future to take big, bold risks and running and fail and be okay with that failure and not take it personally anymore because it was no longer connected to my sense of identity and value and worth. Ryan, how old were you and what was your station in life when you accepted Christ? So I grew up in an amazing Christian home and um, always knew about God. We did family devotions, went to church every Sunday. Um, my dad was a great spiritual leader in our household. And so I always had, like, I would say a faith ever since I was a little kid. But really it became real to me where it felt more like a two-way conversation rather than me, like, talking at God through prayer, just reading his Bible, and not really, like, asking him any questions, not having any dialogue back and forth. And that all changed, you know, with my running, which is why, you know, it's impossible for me to separate my running from um, the experiences I've had with God, because I've just encountered Him um, so much through running. And I love that about God. I think He encounters all of us um, through our gifts, you know, and He pursues us through the things that we're passionate about. So I just encourage people, like, if you're having a hard time hearing from God or you want to get closer to God, like, go do what you're created to do and look for God in those experiences. And I think you'll have a similar experience to me where you, you find God there, you meet Him there, you experience Him there, because that's really, you know, when everything took off for me in my running was, um, uh, and in my faith was, was through running. Uh, Ryan, um, I want to move towards the close of a marathon, miles 24, 25, and 26. And mile 24 you call consistency. Uh, explain that one to me, and, and why is that listed there? Yeah, so I, you know, people often ask me when I'm doing talks or I'm meeting with runners at expos and stuff, they're like, like, how do you do what you do? You know, like, I can't imagine running 
433 per mile for a half marathon. Like, that's just crazy. And I'm like, my response is always just, it's the power of consistency. Like, there's no, like, magic pill that I can give anyone um, to where they're, they're going to reach that level in, you know, a week or a year even. Um, it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to become great at something. And it, it takes that kind of consistency where you're just putting yourself out there. I, put, I train almost every day. Um, I went through periods where I was training every day and then other periods where I trained six days a week. But it's just, I tell people, like, consistency can either be your greatest ally or your greatest enemy, depending on if you're doing the things uh, that you consistently need to be doing to get you towards your goals. Mile 25 is called closure. What's that mean? Yeah, so it took me a couple chapters to write uh, about uh, this challenge that I took on. And it's kind of cool because it's like full circle of my career. You know, I talked about starting my career with this epic 15-mile run around the lake. It's really exhausting, really hard. And then it kind of finishes with uh, me taking on this challenge, doing seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And, you know, that was after I'd already retired from professional running. wasn't running at all anymore. Or I was running like three days a week. So my longest run leading up to this challenge was eight miles. So it was a very similar experience in that there was a lot of suffering. It was really hard. I got stress reaction in day five in Morocco. and uh, it, But it, it did bring the sense of closure to my career that I'd been longing for ever since I started running. I always pictured that I'd run my last marathon, I'd take my shoes off at the finish line and walk away barefoot, similar to how um, uh, wrestlers, they do that in their last, uh, match it they'll wrestle they'll just leave their shoes on the mat and walk away and I thought that's a cool like symbolic way to be like this I've given everything I have to this craft and now it's time to move on into a new season of life so I was able to do that in Sydney uh, after a five and a half hour marathon and uh, just really struggling through just making it to the finish line of that one so I'll never forget getting down taking off my shoes and walking away barefoot and just feeling like like uh, similar to like what Jesus said on the cross, like it is finished. Ryan Hall has been our guest, author of Run the Mile You're In. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Ryan Hall, our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, Run the Mile You're In. Well, we go from Flagstaff, Arizona, where Ryan lives, to Jacksonville, Florida, where Christina Meredith resides. Uh, her book is out. It's called Cinder Girl, My Journey Out of the Ashes to a Life of Hope. Christina, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Busy, busy as a bee on this national book tour. Well, that's good for you. Zondervan put the book out, Cinder Girl, an incredible story of leaving behind abuse and homelessness to become Miss California and a protector of vulnerable children. Uh, what's happening on your book tour? How's your book being received? It's going great. Uh, I've had nothing but amazing response and feedback. And, you know, I think people always like to hear about stories of overcoming. And, you know, mine is relatable. And uh, especially in our current climate, you know, with, the different things that are going on in our country, I think it's encouraging to see people overcome hardship. Well, you open your book with a chapter called One Stoplight Town. Uh, what do you write there? 
it's about where I was born and where I spent the first few years as a tiny little toddler and little girl in upstate New York. Uh, we lived in a town called Schuylerville, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, very small, and at the time, literally only had one stoplight <laughs> that just blinked. It didn't even look, it didn't even go through the the real cycle. So, very small town, surrounded by cornfields, uh, and and that's where I was born. And then you move uh, to the topic of Sarasota, Saratoga, excuse me, race course. Uh, what's mm-hmm. happening? What's going on now? So, Saratoga Springs is a very world-famous horse destination mm-hmm. for horse racing. And my father grew up around the, the racetrack, uh, and so he would take us with his siblings. He was a baby of 12. They were Italian Catholic. And so we would all go to the racetrack, and so I learned how to how to bet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we get to this topic, laundry lady, laundry lady, it's in quotes. Uh, who said that, and what's that mean? That was my mother. She gave me that name uh, shortly after my kindergarten year. Um, she despised me and, and never used me, never called me by my name anyways, but that was the pivotal, pivotal, pivotal moment when she demanded my siblings call me that name, and obviously the names grew worse over time, and uh, it was a long time before I actually heard my name spoken. Why, why do you think your mother was like that? Uh, you know, the therapists and psychologists all say that she projected on me because I looked the most like her. All I'm a baby of eight, and all eight of us, we ha- look like my father, but the only difference is my siblings all have dark hair, dark skin, like my guinea father, and I don't. I have fair skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. And my mother was fair skinned with strawberry blonde hair, so I look like her the most. And so they just say she projected onto me because of her own issues of, of abuse when she was growing up and self hatred and all of that jazz. So uh, we then get to an interesting topic. <clears throat> it's called South of the Mason Dixon Line. Uh, you moved, right? We do. We up and move in the. In the middle of the night, almost, uh, my mother was having an affair, and my father was a very powerful man in uh, in St. Augustine, and so we we moved to St. Augustine, uh, where her parents lived at the time, and literally left my father in, in Schuylerville. <laughs> so it was a crazy time and a scary time, and uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, nine years old when I got down to. North Florida, which we call Southern Georgia, <laughs> pretty much, you know, raised in the South. What was that transition like? Um, it was hot. <laughs> it was it was hot. Uh, it was beautiful. I mean, it was very plain. Not that it's not beautiful in upstate New York, because it is, but it's just a different type of beauty. It was hard to adjust with new schools, especially with you know my issues with reading and writing. But, um, you know, I think a tip, I think a typical adjustment like most kids. What do you mean by your issues with reading and writing? I struggled with reading and writing for years and years and years. I was on hooked on phonics. I was held back a grade. Uh, all the abuse that I was enduring at home 
stunted my ability to learn. So I, I didn't really learn how to read uh, effectively until high school. What do you mean by the chapter that says, goodbye, father? That is when my mother and her boyfriend, soon to be ex-husband, has to plan to accuse my father of spousal abuse, and he was unjustly put into prison. Oh, my goodness. And taken away from us kids. So it was the last time I saw him. I was nine. And what became of your father? He was in and out of jail for a long time. Uh, I mean, it's not every day that you come home and your business and your home and your eight kids and your wife are taken from you. Um, but, you know, that's what happens in small towns with corruption. And uh, my mother was just so happened to be having an affair with the lawyer for the sheriff's department. So it was very easy to make my father go away. And, um, you know, he struggled for a long time with, with that loss. And... Uh, now he's now he's doing great. Still single, hasn't talked to a woman in twenty years. But you know that's what trauma does to you sometimes. Is your mother still living? She is, but I haven't spoken to her since I was sixteen. And how about your dad? Do you have contact with him? Oh yeah, I talk to my dad all the time. So now, <clears throat> uh, this this book, folks, it's out, and what a story it is. Christina Meredith is the author. Cinder Girl is the title. What does Cinder Girl mean? You know, I came up with that title when I was homeless after I aged out of foster care, and I knew I wanted to write my story. And I just, you know, I always felt like I was Cinderella. I, You know, my mother gave me so many different names that weren't really names, and I was in charge of the chores, and my siblings and I were treated differently, and I didn't really have relationships with them, and I just felt, you know like Cinderella. I remember growing up watching that movie and it was my favorite movie and probably because I related to her. <laughs> so it's kind of just a play in words for how I felt. It's a marvelous, uh, fascinating book, folks. And uh, the author, Christina Meredith, is with us. Now we have arrived at this topic, Christina. Uh, you call it Laundry Room Miracles. Uh, what's going on now? Mm-hmm. What's happening? So after my father was put in prison and my mother and her boyfriend, you know, started doing their own thing, us kids were at home by ourselves all the time. And her brother lived upstairs uh, in the apartment attached to the house as like a duplex. And he started molesting us kids and and, uh, he would rape me almost every day. Mm. And so one day when I was in the laundry room after being raped and seen by my mother, I was in utter despair. I think I was 11, 10, 11 at this point. And I just felt the Lord wrap hope and love around me, a, a feeling I had never really felt before outside my father. Um, and it was this miracle that, that God gave me a glimpse of himself when I was such a little girl in so much pain. What does locked away mean? Locked away. So when I confronted my mother about the years of sexual abuse and abuse um, and told her what was going on, they pulled me out of school so I wouldn't tell anybody else and literally locked me in a closet Hmm. for some time. And I didn't leave the house for over a year. I never finished seventh grade. I never went to eighth grade. Uh, And it was a really hard time. 
I was literally locked away so no one would find out that I was being raped. And and so in this closet, I mean, that's where you stayed? You lived there? You slept there? You, I mean, did you ever... Uh, I don't remember exactly how long I was in that closet for. Um, long enough to try to kill myself and mm. urinate on myself and be starving and pull out all my hair some more. But, um, you know... It was a really dark time, and I didn't live there for that year or however long I was locked into the house, but uh, I know I didn't leave the house, that's for sure. Definitely locked into the house after the initial locking into the closet. You do a chapter on uh, NJROTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean, and, and why was that important to write about? NJROTC, the Naval Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps program, is a high school ROTC program to prepare students with any background in, in age, from ninth grade through senior year, to be officers in the military. And the home I was in before my start of my freshman year, my mother had farmers at different homes, and this one particular family decided they were going to enroll me into pre-boot camp. Um, and I loved it. <laughs> I fell in love with ROTC. I fell in love with the military. I became absolutely obsessed with becoming an officer in the United States military. And so, you know, uh, ROTC in those men and women saved my life. It was the only structure I had. It was the only consistency I had. It was the only purpose I had. It was the only thing I was good at. I was not good at academics. I still struggled with that, but I excelled in athletics and I excelled in RCC. And so, uh, RCC gets a whole chapter because it's amazing. It's an amazing program that saved my life. And where did that all lead? Did you become an officer? What happened? So I am actually, uh, enlisted soldier in the United States Army now, and I'm at the, I'm a contracted cadet at the University of Florida. Uh, and I will finish my officer training this summer at Fort Knox, and then in December, I'll commission. So, yes, <laughs> many, many years. But a dream that I had as a child, as a young girl, is about to be uh, reality. So how did you go from the Navy to the Army? So so Navy, is it's just the high school program that that high school had. So I went to Meese High School, and uh, it's, it's just the program they had. And I think you know, whatever branch you decide to choose doesn't really matter as long as you serve. So the Army just fit my needs better and, you know, allowed me to pay for some of my college, and it was just a good fit. Christina Meredith is our guest. Her book is called Cinder Girl. Uh, Zondervan is the publisher. So uh, I want to understand this. So uh, you've got still some work to do this summer at Fort Knox in Kentucky. And then when that program, yep, yep. Is, so, program is over, uh, what, what will you be, and where does that lead? So, I mean, I'm an enlisted soldier now. I'm stationed at the 146 uh, Signal Battalion here in Jacksonville um, as a contract to that. I'm the 74 Delta Seaburn enlisted side, and I'm, you know, finishing my RTC, which is, you know, finishing your degree and your RTC classes. But I'll go to Fort Knox to do CST, which is your officer training. 36 days in the field at Fort Knox. And so once I complete that, I, I have one more semester in the fall for school, and then I graduate and I commission. 
and, and I will commission as a signal intelligence officer, and I'll be stationed in Texas. I'm really excited. Isn't that awesome? And where are you in college? Where are you going to get your degree from? So I'm contracted as an ROTC cadet at University of Florida, but I actually go to college at University of North Florida. I got it. Sure. So I'll get my degree from, from UNS and my commission from UF. Well, congratulations. That's that's an exciting story. Thank uh, you. Yeah, and the Lord is very gracious to me. And, and then there's a chapter that you write uh, called Sacrificial Prayers. Uh, explain mm-hmm. that Explain that to us. So I went to East High School, and I was left a lot of the time. My mother would forget me, and so I'd be after school after practice and be the only kid, except for one other kid who was there because, he was loved, and he was getting extra coaching. I went to school with Tim Tebow, and so after school and everyone was gone, it would be me sitting on the sidewalk waiting for my mother, who had forgotten me again, and him on the football field with three coaches and his dad getting extra coaching. And uh, one, of the, one of the times I was sitting on the sidewalk, Mr. Tebow had walked up to me, and he had asked me what I was doing, and I was startled and just told him as a dessert, just waiting for my mother to come get me. Sometimes she forgets. And he, his stern expression quickly turned into one of sorrow, and he asked if he could pray for me. And whenever he would see me waiting for my mother, who would forget me, he would walk over and he would pray for me. And, uh, you know, I think the fact that he even saw me, the invisible girl, was such a blessing. I think it's so important to pray for people and to pray for strangers, and to really love people, because you never know how it's going to affect them or change their life. Christina Meredith is our guest, the book called Cinder Girl. More with Christina right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. My guest is a cinder girl. Actually, my guest is the author, Christina Meredith. The book is called Cinder Girl. And Christina, we've arrived now at a topic you simply call the adjustment. Uh, What's happening now? Uh, The adjustment was my ROTC teacher and his wife had taken me in, and finally I was put into foster care. Mm. And so... Um, it was just an adjustment to live with a normal family after years and years and years of poverty and abuse. Did it go well? Well, it went well enough. I love that family. They were very good to me, but it was very complicated. And so when I turned 18, the first, my first semester of my senior year, I left. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a chapter called Sunny, S-U-N-N-Y. Why that chapter? Sunny is the name of my first car that I bought after I graduated high school. Um, She was a bright yellow two-door Chevy Cavalier, and Uh I moved into her after I graduated and lived out of her for a little over a year. What was that like? (laughs) Wow, homelessness is no fun. But I worked really hard, and I figured out how to take down to the beach and I, I had as many jobs as I could, could handle, and, you know, I read my Bible every day, and I prayed, and I just didn't give up hope. But homelessness is, 
it's a very sometimes dark and lonely place and you know it's 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 a certain type of um suffering that you can't really understand until you have experienced it what happened uh, in the chapter ms california explain that to us well uh in my younger 20s after bartending and working at um different jobs throughout the years as a maid and such. I moved with my little sister. I, she was living with me at the time. And I packed our little house up, our little piece apartment, and I moved us across country. We moved to Los Angeles. I was going to write my book, start my nonprofit, do all these things. Wanted to first start. Was tired of Jacksonville and all the horrible memories. And um, moved to L.A. Shortly after, I was approached by a pageant recruiter who told me to compete in Miss California pageant, to which I laughed at him, <laughs> uh, but was curious and looked it up and was like, oh, I can give this a good college try, and if I win, then it can really launch my platform to reform foster care and can help me with my book, and this can really be an opportunity. And I gave it a good college try, and it worked out. <laughs> uh, what happened? I won in 2013. I won in 2013, and uh, it was a it was a beautiful gift God gave me. And what became of it? What where did that lead to? It just led to more opportunities. It led to I think it was more for my own growth as a as a young woman. Uh, you know, it built some confidence in me, and and I learned I learned some things about myself, and I think you know it was. It was a, it was just a beautiful time to grow and to learn and, you know, to hear my own name, I, to have everyone else know my real name. You know, I think it was just God's kindness again to me. What's this chapter towards the end of your book called Purpose? What's that mean? Uh, it's it's about not allowing your suffering or hardships to cripple you, but allowing them to bring you deeper into your purpose and into what God's called you to do. And so I just talk about my own experience and how God's utilized my suffering to, to bring out the best in others. So I think having a purpose is so essential to a healthy life. And I really encourage people to tap into that dream, that gift, that talent they have so they can best serve the Lord and those around them. What is the Christina Meredith Foundation all about? You know, we are about reforming foster care and advocacy, and we're in the works right now of partnering with different nonprofits around the nation, and we're going to be building facilities that have charter schools, high school charter schools on them, with uh, long-term housing for foster youth who are homeless. Every year, 20,000 children age out of foster care. I was one of them, and they become homeless. Half a million children are in care right now, and they shouldn't be. Foster care, the foster care system is not the answer. It is perpetuating the welfare and the prison system. It's an $80 billion crisis, and if we can tap in and, and really fill the gap in this need, we can change the social and economic statuses of our inner city communities and our rural communities. And so the foundation really taps into those into the places that are needful, like the, the aged-out youth. So 
Uh, I advocate for two pillars. The first one is mandatory trauma therapy for all foster care children. And the second is mandatory after-school activities for all foster care youth of high school age. I think it's really important that during the high school age that a, that a kid that is in and out of different homes and has no structure has a place where they can go to that, that provides them a purpose, that provides them uh, camaraderie, that provides them uh, structure. And uh, I know what, what RTC did for me, and I think any activity for high school age is going to change their life. So that, that's, what, that's what we do. We advocate for policy reform, and we're working on building our facilities in major cities. Christina, the final chapter of your book is simply called Suffering. Uh, why do you end your book with that word? You know, suffering is a part of life, and it's hard. Life is so hard. And I wanted to encourage people that in the darkness, that there can be light, that suffering is painful, it's uncomfortable, it's scary, it can be lonely, it can be a really, really dark, dark time. And I talk about it because I think there's people don't talk about it enough, and I want to encourage people that in the dark night of the soul, that there is a God in heaven who loves you, and he will work all things out for your good, even when we don't understand it, even when it's painful, even when it's confusing, that there is a God who loves us and who is for us, and we can use our suffering to change the world. Uh, one little piece here. You uh, won that pageant in uh, in uh, California. You were living in L.A. Uh, how did you get back to Florida again? I came back a few years ago to finish my degree. And um, I just drove across country, <laughs> like I did the first time. And does Jackson feel uh, seem like home now? Oh no, no, it doesn't. It's a very painful place for me still, but you know, it the, it opened up opportunities to finish my degree and commission in the United States Army, and so you know, I utilized it for that. And uh, I moved to Texas in December, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, what do you want people to take from our chat here? I think it's important for people to realize that. What you go through doesn't have to define you, that you can define you, and you can go through hard things, and you can you can survive it and, and turn it into a purpose and a calling for your life. How do people reach you? Do you like to hear from people? Yeah, uh, I have the Instagram is a great way. Uh, there's an email on there that my team goes through. Uh, we try to get back to everyone. There has been thousands of messages the last few weeks, uh, so bear with us. But you can go to my website, ScreenAmerit.org, and there's a newsletter. We try to reach out to everybody on that. But um, just the, the normal social social media. Christina, I've got a feeling there's another book in you. and uh, <laughs> There is. <laughs> yeah, and I think it may be related uh, to your uh, your upcoming military experiences. Just a hunch, just a hunch. Um, we'll see. We'll see what the Lord does. Yeah, that's going to be great. Well, I'm so glad uh, that we had a few minutes here to talk about your book. Zondervan is the publisher. The name of the book is Cinder Girl, My Journey Out of the Ashes to a Life of Hope. And the author is Christina Meredith, who has been our guest. 
Christina, a million thanks. I wish you all the very, very best, and uh, take good care, and may God continue to bless your work. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Well, we will have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, the word, right here in Orlando, Florida. Well, thanks for joining us here, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Ryan Hall, the American record holder for the half marathon, uh, ran in the Olympics representing the United States in 2008-2012. He was our guest in that first segment, his book, Run the Mile You're In, and then Christina Meredith in Jacksonville talking about her book, Cinder Girl. Speaking of books, my most recent book is out now. It's called Character Carved in Stone. It's about an experience I had on the campus at West Point, uh, speaking to the Army sports teams and uh, then running into these 12 benches at Trophy Point. Uh, You can read all about it. The book is in bookstores now in the business section, Amazon, a great way to order books. Uh, Have a wonderful week ahead, folks, and we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 